What's up guys, Dalton here. Before we hop into this episode of the PT Coffee Cast, I just wanted to touch base with you and say thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Whether this is your first time listening or you've been rocking with us since day one, we appreciate your support. Every like, comment, share, subscribe, whatever it is, truly does mean the world to us and it continues to push us to put out the best possible content for you guys. Before we hop in, I just want to talk to you about our partnership with Physio Network. Physio Network is on a mission to improve physiotherapy standards worldwide. They do this through their research reviews. If you sign up, you'll get 12 research reviews per month in both written and audio form. Articles are selected and appraised by industry experts such as Sandy Hilton, Mary O'Keefe, Tom Goom. Um, former PT Coffee Cast guests such as Teddy Wilsey, Sam Spinelli, Jared Hall, Tom Walters, and plenty more. They're clinically relevant and recently published, and they take less than five minutes to read one review, saving you hours of work. This also solves that problem that we all struggle with. How do we stay up to date with the research? Physio Network has you covered. They also give you access to a members-only Facebook group, and you can do quizzes that will get you CEU points. They got it all. If you guys are interested in trying out Physio Network, you can start your seven-day free trial now by using the link in the show notes or our bio on Instagram. This will give you the option to play around, see what you like. Do you like listening? Do you like reading? And just seeing the amazing content that they give you guys, and then you will join because Physio Network is amazing. We love to hear from you guys. If you have signed up for Physio Network, please let us know how your experience has gone. We'd love to hear, and we can pass on that information to them. Also, we are super pumped to finally announce the release of the Movement Coffee Club. What is this, you ask? This is a way that you guys can continue to connect and support the PT Coffee Cast community. So we have three clubs available for you guys. We have the Espresso Club, which each month you will get a personal message from Will and myself thanking you for the support. The second club we have is the Cafe Club, where you get everything in the Espresso Club, as well as a shout-out on an episode, put on the list of the Coffee Club supporters, and a bonus episode each month. And then lastly, we have our favorite club, the Mug Club. You get everything in the first two clubs, as well as a PT Coffee Cast mug, a monthly coffee subscription of our own coffee blend, and a monthly Mug Club Zoom call. The reason why we put this club out is we want to continue to develop ways that we can connect with you guys, the community, as well as have an opportunity for you to support us, um, show us some love, and allow for us to continue to develop and put out the best possible content. You guys can support us for as little as $3 a month. This money is going to go directly back into the podcast for new things like audio equipment, video equipment for better video content, merch, coffee, everything's going to go back into the PT Coffee Cast so we can continue to provide you guys with some pretty cool opportunities. If you're interested in supporting us, you can check the link in our bio on Instagram at the PT Coffee Cast or at the Movement PTs and click the Coffee Club as well as in our show notes of each episode, we'll have a link there for you to head over and join. Guys, thank you so much for the continued support and we hope that you enjoy this episode of the PT Coffee Cast. Welcome to the Movement PT Coffee Cast, where we sit down and talk about physical therapy, health, and whatever else comes to mind during our coffee-infused conversations. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the PT Coffee Cast, brought to you by the Movement my name is Dalton, and alongside me today is my beautifully bearded friend, William. William, how are we doing today? Doing good. You know, for those watching this on video, <laughs> I wore my shark shirt. But uh, I have to say, Dalton, uh-huh. this might be a little bit of a misnomer for the podcast today <laughs> because you are doing what this month? I'm not having any coffee and and caffeine. So this is... Uh, for those of you guys who have been following along, you know this is a pretty crazy feat for me to to take on. I probably I don't even remember the last time I haven't consumed caffeine in a day, which is kind of a pretty scary thing. Um, but I'm day what is it? What's today? The fifth? The fourth? Day fourth. day day fifth? Five day five days in? Um, I'm gonna say the first like four days I literally felt like hungover. Like I don't have any other way to describe it. I felt hungover. 
we might have to do a whole separate podcast just on this experience. Yeah, it's gonna be a, <laughs> it's gonna be a divine, a divine experience, that's for sure. Um, but enough about my coffee problem. I'm excited about our guest today. We've been wanting to get a pain psychologist on the podcast for a really long time. Um, and today we have one. So we have Dr. Rachel Zoffness on. She is a leading global pain expert and pain psychologist and also an assistant clinical professor at UCSF School of Medicine, where she teaches the um, residents there. She's also, she's also an author and a speaker. Um, she's been on some pretty notable podcasts in the PT space. Um, we first heard her on the Level Up Initiative. So shout out to Zach and the team over there. They're amazing. Um, but we're excited to connect with her and have her on the show. So Rachel, welcome. Yo, thank you for having me. How's your day going? Shark shirt. The shark shirt really is amazing, by the yeah. way. Got to keep things interesting around here. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Obviously. I don't know about where you are, but here it's a little bit of a, just one of those dreary kind of days, no sun. So I bust out the sun shirt and it, I think it, I hope, you know, it makes people feel like it's a little more like summer. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um, before we dive into all the, all the good stuff, I saw somewhere, I don't remember where I was reading it, something along the lines of you being a butterfly chaser, a dedicated butterfly chaser. What is, was that like your life before pain psychology? No, but that's a funny question. Um, Jeff Moore would laugh at this. Jeff Moore um, of Pain Reframed. I actually had beers with him once in Colorado and I was like, showing him pictures of butterflies and he just like could not care less, but he was so nice about it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I just, I'm a nerd. Like you, you read my bio at the intro. I just feel like if you said Rachel Zoffness is a big nerd, that would be totally fine. <laughs> Um, I just have always been into like science and nature. I was a neuroscience major, like brain and behavior. And I couldn't also decide between that and like animal behavior. So yeah, I was a science teacher at the Bronx Zoo and I like run around chasing butterflies and other wildlife in my spare time. It sounds exciting. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, like a, I'm a dork. Yeah, totally. So this kind of goes nice into like my, my next question would be like, what kind of led you then more towards like the psychology side of things? When did that kind of shift? Yeah. So, um, I always wanted to live at the intersection of all these different things. And as soon as I start saying the things, you'll see how this dovetails with pain. I wanted to live at the intersection of neuroscience and medicine and psychology and education and science writing, like from college. And um, I majored in brain and behavior, which was neuroscience and psychology, mostly at Brown as an undergrad. And then I, I studied pain, like as my honors thesis, I just went down the rabbit hole. It was actually my mentor who said, you should study pain with this guy who's at Brown, who's doing this neuroscience of pain research. So that's what I did. And I went away from it for a little while. Um, yeah, I did that thing where I was a science teacher at the Bronx Zoo and I was a science writer at a nerdy science magazine, but I kept coming back to this thing where I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life to helping people. And I wanted to do it in some way where I was bridging this gap between medicine and psychology and neuroscience. So I just sort of kept coming back to it. And then in my PhD program, and this will not surprise you even remotely, there is zero pain education because in Western medicine, we have this divide. Either you have a phys like physical pain problem and you see like a physician and you guys PTs, or you have, you know, an emotional or mental health problem and you see someone like me, a psychologist. So, you know, there's not very much psychology training in medicine or PT land, and there's not that much of medical training or pain training in the world of psychology really bothered me. So for my postdoc, I really went down the rabbit hole again with treating pain. And I learned all sorts of non-farm approaches to pain medicine that I had already been learning about in my PhD program where I was studying CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. So it was sort of a little bit of a winding road for me, but I've been doing this thing for a long time now, studying pain and talking about pain. It's just sort of taken on different forms, you know, like for a while it was research and then it was clinical work. And now I'm still doing clinical work, but now I'm doing a lot of education and writing as well. Why do you think there is that divide? Oh, because Western medicine is broken. We have this like false sense that like the brain and body are not connected for some reason, which is so confusing and makes me crazy. That's just how Western medicine is. We think that like emotions are divorced from 
the physical body or sensations, which we know of course is not true. And the way I like to teach it to my patients in particular is that like emotions don't just live in your head, right? They also come out in your body. And we all know that if you've ever been nervous and had sweaty palms and a dry mouth and a racing heart, you know that your emotions are physiological. And of course, emotions affect pain hundred percent of the time, because of course the brain is implicated in pain and your sympathetic nervous system is implicated in pain. So, you know, so that, that intersection really fascinates me, but the answer to your question is that Western medicine is just deeply confused. That's my answer. <laughs> like people like to separate things out into silos, you know, where it's like, there's this thing going on and then you like separate it, you know, but it's like, it's weird to me why that there is that divide, you know, and there's no, like, it's not that intuitive for there to be interconnectedness within all those areas, you know? Yeah. And I agree with you. We are, we, I think we oversimplify and maybe that's why we silo everything. Like we want you to just focus on, you know, knees and we want people like me, psychologists to only focus on emotions, but like, that's just not how humans or animals are built. And that's always been true. And we've always known that. And I do think there's a danger to oversimplifying. And we know that's true when it comes to pain, because look at pain medicine. It is a shit show. Like we've been treating pain either exclusively or primarily with pills and procedures for decades and chronic pain is on the rise. And now we have an opioid epidemic on top of everything else. So if what we were doing was working, we would see incidents of chronic pain going down, not up, you know? So like, we know it's broken and we know that we all have to collaborate and work together for our patients to get well, but that's just not how it's taught in most training programs. Have you, I mean, you, you've obviously been super passionate about this topic and you've started to do that, you know, you're, you're speaking a lot about it. You're doing your own writing, um, alongside your clinical work. Have you seen some sort of like solution to, to this issue that's going on or like some steps in the right direction that gives you like the hope that we're making positive moves? That's such a good question. Um, I try to stay hopeful. Um, I think things like this, like I see collaborations between different disciplines and that makes me really hopeful. Like I have PTs and physicians who are reaching out to me and interested in pain psychology. So that seems like a step forward. Um, but you know, I teach medical school now because I'm so, you can tell I'm like, it's not just that I'm passionate. I'm also angry about it as someone who has lived with pain. Like it just pisses me off that we're still doing it so wrong after so much time and like all the knowledge that we've accrued. Um, so when I teach medical school, I ask my med students, they're usually residents and fellows. So they've been through medical school already and I'll ask them, how much have you learned about pain? And the answer is almost nothing. And I ask, have you learned about the biopsychosocial model of health or pain? And the answer like 9.5 times out of 10 is no. So that really discourages me because as you know, the first thing we do when we have pain is we go to a physician. So if we're not teaching physicians that pain is a biopsychosocial problem requiring a biopsychosocial solution, you know, psychologists and PTs can know, can understand this stuff all day long, but I think the real, I, I know education really needs to change. So the answer is yes, I feel hopeful in some regards and also discouraged in others. Yeah. And, and I guess what I'm curious to hear is like, you know, as, as physios, we, you know, Will and I specifically have definitely started to dabble and, and, and learn about these things and see the importance of like a biopsychosocial lens and using like, these things to help manage people's pain. But I'd be curious to hear like, what does it look like for, for you as a pain psychologist, like maybe painting a picture of what you do um, to help people that are in pain? Right. That's a great question. I feel like most people have never heard of a pain psychologist before. It's like back to that thing where either you have like emotional pain and you see a therapist or you have physical pain and you see a doctor. Right. So, um, in pain psychology, we bridge that gap between medicine and neuroscience and psychology. Um, and there's lots of ways of treating pain. But the thing I think that's most important to say is if we want to help our patients, we have to treat the brain in addition to the body, because we know that that's where pain is produced, of course, in concert with the body, right? 
So I think the thing for pain psychologists is like, we're providing pain education because usually our patients have never heard a thing about pain or how it works. We're always trying to weave in the psychosocial component of pain management. Um, by that, I mean, if we're talking about pain as this biopsychosocial problem, so there's like three prongs of it, right? There's like the biological processes that are happening, the psychological processes and the social or the socioeconomic processes that are co-occurring altogether. You know, we know that the biomedical components of pain are the things that are usually treated first and often exclusively. So we're trying to target like that big psychosocial, like the two thirds of the pain problem, right? Like if pain's biopsychosocial and you're only targeting the biomedical stuff, you're missing two thirds of pain. So I feel like a lot of the times that's what I'm going after, but I'm also trying to convince people. And as I'm going to try and do today, that when you target psychology, when you target emotions and thoughts, you're always, always, always also targeting biology. Oh, there's no way around it. Right. Cause when you think about what emotions and thoughts are, it's a biological cascade of neurotransmitters and hormones and changes in muscle tension. I mean, all the things are always connected back to that thing where the brain and body are connected hundred percent of the time. So I think I'm always trying to convince people as a pain psychologist that they're not crazy. It's not all in their head. I'm trying to get rid of the stigma around seeing a psychologist for a physical problem. And I'm also trying to explain that, you know, when we target this natural and normal depression and anxiety and stress that comes from having pain for many months and years, what we're actually going to do is help your brain lower this pain volume, right? So pain's actually going to feel less bad if we're going after the trauma and the negative emotions and the negative thoughts, the catastrophic thoughts. And if we're targeting like social medicine too, like when you're isolated at home, your body feels worse also. So I think in pain psychology, what I'm always trying to do is tie everything together and then give people tools. So I do cognitive behavioral therapy, which is not what people think it is. And I'm happy to talk about that too, but it sort of ties together all these things. And I, it's mostly for giving people tools and techniques for managing pain and getting uh, their life back, like being more functional. There's like so much to unpack and so much to say, but I don't want to talk your ear off for 40 minutes. With like, uh, so with pain, you know, not always, but I feel like a lot of the times it's in relationship to like some type of like meaningful activity, exercise, you know, movement. So I'm wondering like how much of what you talk about with your patients is like, um, movement related, you know? The reason I really like that question is because you're asking about the intersection of PT and psychology. So, um, the answer is, as someone who's like been down the rabbit hole with pain medicine, of course, movement is critical to wellness. And we know that most of our patients are in avoidance mode. So you're going to hear me talk like psychology speak, right? So behaviorally patients with pain, the behavior that they engage in is avoidance, avoidance of social activity, physical activity, you know, doing anything that they're afraid might hurt, which is normal and natural. So I'm always trying to break that avoidance cycle and getting back to life by that. I mean, literally like going and buying groceries, like activities of daily living, like buying groceries or going for a walk with a friend, but also like being able to lift things and being able to go to the gym and being able to go back to sports and hobbies that you love, like swimming or, so I always teach patients, um, a pacing plan. So by that, I mean, gradually getting back to movement little bits at a time. But I think what I maybe do differently, and you guys can school me on this is I have them pick any valued activity. It doesn't matter. It can be like fudge making, you know, or like, it doesn't matter. And they, we start with that and that's the activity. And then from there, you know, we increase like walking and going to the grocery store and, you know, maybe going for a jog, but I always have my patients pick the thing that they miss the most. And that's the functional activity we start with. But yes, I'm, I'm always getting people back to movement because, you know, all the reasons that you guys know, right. Without that, you know, pain doesn't actually remit. I love that answer because like, I think, especially when we were in school, um, when we were talking about this sort of thing, it was often like the fear of people in our class that like, because we're considering all these factors, you're stepping on into like out of your lane and into another lane. But I just personally, and I think you'd probably agree with me. It's like, there's so much crossover 
uh, between the two things, uh, even though we're probably coming from like a movement place first, you know, whereas you're probably coming from the other end of the spectrum first. Yeah. Right. So that's the thing I hear all the time is like, I, and I love this because, you know, it's nice when people are being mindful about, you know, well, what is your lane and what is the scope of practice and what are the limits? But the problem like that, that tells me already, you're like a good clinician. Like the fact that you're just thinking about that tells me you're, you're already great. Like you're already in your lane. And, um, you know, if you said you were a psychologist or if I said I was a PT, we would be out of our lanes, but like, that's not what any of us are doing. What you're saying is you want to have a psychologically informed practice when treating people with pain. And what I'm saying is I want to have a psychology practice that's informed by PT because we know that we can't work in isolation. Our patients are only going to get better if we're working together. So yes, you should know about psychology. All PTs should know about psychology and you should use that language. Like, should you be assessing and treating trauma? Probably not like emotional trauma. No. And like, should I be like doing PT with people and laying them on the table and like moving their bodies? No, but I don't think that's what you guys are saying. It's just like, how can, how can I use what some of you guys are doing in, in some way that's helpful and how can you take some of the stuff that I'm using that's helpful. And then at the end of the day, we refer to each other, right? We say to our patients like, Hey, you could really benefit from a PT. Let me give you 12 phone numbers. And you say, Hey, you would really benefit from a pain psychologist or a pain coach, which is what I call myself now. Cause there's so much stigma around psychology. Um, you know, and, and we just cross refer and, and we know that that's the recipe for success. So especially if you refer that person over to us and we're speaking the same language. Exact. Totally. I just to tell you an anecdotal story. One of my dearest friends is a PT who lives in Northern California and she and I attended the San Diego pain summit together. And we're both just like pain nerds. And somehow I was referred a patient kid with pain, chronic pain, CRPS, who happened to live in her town. And we tag team the crap out of that. And that kid was CRPS who hadn't walked in like a year and a half, got better in three months. We were coordinating care like you would not believe. And like, it just, it just really reinforced for me that if we really were working together, our patients would get better so much faster. And, and that was something that I was just thinking about as you guys were talking about. It's like, how do we continue to make that more common in the, in the space, you know, like as, as like physios and, you know, business owners, like we own our own clinic and we think about these things. It's like, how can we continue to best serve the individual, right? Like we provide the, the physio aspect of things. We have a dietitian on staff here. We have a massage therapist. It's like one thing that I've always had in my mind as going, going through like this career is like, how do we bring on someone like yourself to fit that last little bit that I think would really help people excel, especially within the chronic pain realm for sure. Yeah. And you're touching on a really important problem, which is back to that thing where most psychologists and therapists in general are not taught a thing about pain. You know, I had to really seek it out um, and sort of like add add on to the undergrad research I had done and the training I had done. Um, And I didn't really get a lot of that until I was a postdoc and could sort of pursue my own training. So, you know, if I could revolutionize psychology and insert mandatory pain and health education in every program, I would. Um, maybe one day I will have that power, but I don't right now. Um, And it's also hard to think about like, where do you even start? Do we start with med schools? Do we start with psychology program? Like, I don't even, there's so much work to be done. It's like, where do you even start? But, but to your point, there are pain psychologists out there and there are therapists who are trained in pain. They're just hard to find and they're few and far between. Um, Yeah. And I also, there's a website called psychology today, and you can actually type in like chronic pain or, but, but the problem there that I've discovered when I've done that with patients is a lot of those people say they do chronic pain work, but what they're doing is sitting there and talking to you about your pain and they're validating and, and which is great and really nice. But in my mind, that's not what I am talking about when I talk about treating pain, like we have to be doing pain education and explaining people to people how their pain works so that they can be less terrified and less scared of movement. We have to be getting them on these pacing plans. We have to be giving them tools for pain management. And and most therapists are not trained in that. I mean, it's not all helpless and hopeless, but, um, but it is a major problem. Yeah. And and I I mean, I've, 
I would call myself a fairly optimistic person. Um, I, I think that we'll, I think we'll continue to see a shift. I'm, I'm hopeful. Like, I think people are going to realize the power that you can have when you start to understand these things in the sense of helping people get better. I know that was one thing that really pushed myself and, and I'm sure will down that, that area of knowledge, because we realized how much we could help people. And that almost we were doing a disservice in a sense to not at least understand these things to help the people that are in front of us. And I think more people that come out of school and more people that are trying to figure out how can I best serve my client? Like I'm hoping eventually they'll come across you or this conversation or the conversation you had with Zach or whatever it may be and be like, Oh, this is something that I need to look into more. Totally. And I should also say not for nothing. Like I already mentioned that anger is a driving force for me. I don't know what that says, but, but it's part of the reason that I ended up writing a workbook because I was like, I can't refer my patients out. Like I have a wait list sometimes of like 50 people and that's, it's unfair to people living with pain. Like, and, and, and it makes no sense. And there are other therapists who are interested in it. So I was thinking like, also not for nothing. Pain psychology is unaffordable to most people because insurance companies don't reimburse it, which is not acceptable. Insurance companies should be reimbursing. If they're reimbursing pills and procedures, they sure as hell should be reimbursing things like CBT and biofeedback. Like it's utterly insane. So I was like, if I put everything I do into a workbook, maybe it will be a more affordable and accessible and B any therapist or PT can pick it up and use the psychology stuff with any patient. Right. So yeah. So it's the pain management workbook. And that's why I put it together. It was exactly that reason. Like, how do you make this more accessible? How do you get it out into the world? You know, like no one knows it exists, but at least it's out in the world now. Right. right. I think that anger is totally reasonable though, you know, because the reality of it is you have people coming in who have all this misinformation that isn't just, you know, harmless information. It actually perpetuates the pain that they're experiencing it leads them down potentially really dark places and uh ultimately they have less you know meaningful lives and like so the impact is so real um we've seen it i'm sure you see it a lot and so i think that anger you know as long as it's directed towards uh achieving a better totally then yeah, it, right. it that's I think we feel it too. Yeah, no, every like I would say every healthcare provider I know who works with patients with pain feels some sort of like anger, righteous indignation about the mistreatment of pain and the and like you know, like you said, like the dangerous paths some of our patients have gone down. Like I have an adult patient with CRPS right now, actually, which is complex regional pain syndrome. And, um, he has it bilaterally, both hands and feet. And he is considering and has been, it has been suggested that he amputate a hand. And no, if you look this up, this is a thing in the CRPS world. This is a thing in the CRPS world. And patients will tell you like, that is a thing. And surgeons do not know about CRPS. This guy has had like 12 physicians. No one, he's was, he, no one even caught it. Like no one even diagnosed him appropriate. So, so I think when you see that suffering enough, it really gets under your skin. So, so I think you're right. I think it motivates us to do things in the realm of good and helping people. It's a, it's a good motivator. And you mentioned um, cognitive behavioral therapy is like kind of your area of expertise. I, I would love to hear a little bit more about that, at least from like your perspective and how you use it within, within your practice. Only if you say the word about 42 more times so I can hear your Canadian accent. No, just kidding. <laughs> 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 um, okay. So um, cognitive behavioral therapy is a really interesting treatment that bridges the gap between medicine and psychology fairly well, in my opinion. Um, it was developed initially as a treatment for anxiety and depression. Um, and of course, you know that that is intimately related to chronic pain. Like a lot of people living with chronic pain also understandably live with anxiety and depression too. Um, it also treats sleep issues and family dysfunction and all these other issues that come up with chronic pain as well, which I find very, very helpful. Um, but essentially what cognitive behavioral therapy is, is it's this therapy that teaches us about the intersection between thoughts and emotions and physical sensations and behaviors. So thoughts, emotions, physical body, 
and behaviors. And all those things are interconnected all the time. So the, the essence of CBT is the things we think, like, for example, with chronic pain patients, I hear things like, I'm broken, I'll never get better. I've tried 105 treatments, so nothing's going to work. Or like these biomedical beliefs, like this is only about my body, my knee or my back, then affects how you feel emotionally. So if you're thinking I'm broken, I'll never get better. How are you going to feel? You're going to feel probably pretty panicky and anxious and sad about your life. How are those emotions and thoughts going to affect your body? Again, back to that thing we were saying before, emotions are always physiological. So when you are depressed and anxious, your sympathetic nervous system is going to be in overdrive. We know from neuroscience research that sympathetic nervous system in overdrive and negative thoughts and emotions always amplify pain. That's just how pain works. So you're thinking these negative thoughts, you're feeling these negative emotions, your body's now freaking out. Pain is amplified. What do you do? How do you act as a result? So we think a lot about coping behaviors. So the way a lot of our patients behave as a result of pain is that stuff we were talking about before, where you stay in bed, you stay on your couch, you stop exercising, you don't go outside, you're not getting sunlight, you're not seeing friends, you stop your social activities, you're not getting the support you need in order to be a healthy human being, you're not exercising, your body is getting stiffer by the day. So, so, and then the cycle spins back around, right? So how do those behaviors then affect what you're thinking? You're thinking, yeah, now I have no life. Pain dominates everything. Like I've lost everything to pain. And how does that thought make you feel? It makes you feel even more depressed and anxious. And what does that do to your body and your pain? And then how do you act as a result of that? So everybody, and I mean, all of us, we're all stuck in this cycle of thoughts and emotions and sensations and behaviors. But when it comes to pain, what's really cool is you can kick that cycle in, in any one of those four places, you can target those catastrophic negative thoughts and change them. You can target emotions like anxiety and depression and treat them. You can target physical sensations and change those too with pacing plans and all these other awesome things that PTs do. And you can change behaviors. In fact, that's the thing I like to go after most with my patients. Like I usually ask them, so is what you're doing working for you? And the answer is no, like they're in my office because what they're doing isn't working. So then there's like some buy-in and some motivation to make behavior change. And then you inevitably see a change in the cycle because when you're behaving differently, you feel differently and you think differently. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, that's like sort of the method to the madness when it comes to treating pain. I hope that made, did that make sense the way I said that? Yeah, that was great. That was, that was a great way to break it down. And okay. then are you like, so when you're working on people with like, let's say certain parts of what you just talked about, like, is this through like, um, like, are you, are you just, I know a lot of it's education and, and you're, you're teaching them a lot, but are you having them go through certain activities or I don't know where the right word to use, but are they, are they working through like some of the stuff that you have in the workbook? Like what is like the, I don't even want to say treatment, but what does that look like? It's totally treatment. And the answer is, and I know you anticipate this because you even put it in your email. It depends on who walks into my office and what they're dealing with always. But I, I am always in my head thinking about that, that model or that cycle. And I, and as my patients are talking to me in my head, I'm like logging certain things. I'm like logging their catastrophic thoughts and their beliefs about their body and their pain. And I'm logging what they're telling me about, like how often they feel hopeless and how often they're crying and, you know, whether they're feeling panicky and I'm logging like the sensations in their body and I'm logging the behaviors. So I'm always like thinking about that. And ultimately for me, up front, I like front load with the education piece. So I always teach this cycle and it's intuitive for everybody. As soon as I teach it, people are like, oh yeah, that's totally me, you know? And then we just talk about like, okay, let's just like fill in the blank, right? Like, let's talk about the thoughts. Let's talk about the emotions. Let's talk about the sensations and the behaviors. And let's see where we start with behavior change. And it's different for everyone. Um, but I'm pretty transparent about like, I happen to like changing behaviors first. Cause I feel like I get the most bang for my buck. Like if you've been sitting on your couch for four years and I get you outside, even for two minutes a day, you bet your ass, you're going to see a change in like thoughts and feelings pretty quick. Like now you're getting sunlight and you're seeing your neighbors and you're feeling a little happier and you feel a little bit more motivated. Um, so, so yeah, it's different with everyone who walks in, but the treatment plan ultimately has this like foundational structure that remains fairly consistent. I love the uh, idea of approaching the behaviors first. Cause I feel like we also do that a lot where it's like, 
that experiential learning where you can kind of reflect on what you've done and how you felt during those things that you were doing. Uh, so interesting that you come from the same kind of uh, perspective there, even though I'm sure, you know, sometimes you uh, take it from a different approach. Yeah. I mean, I do have people who come into my office and the thoughts are so limiting that I can't engage in any behavior change until I go after the like, no, but if I stand up or leave my couch, you know, my pain's going to be so bad that I won't be functional for the next week. And, and I can't get them off their couch until I go after the thought. You know what I mean? So yes, all that stuff is in the workbook. That's exactly right. There's like a whole chapter on cognitive strategies. There's two. And there's chapters on behavior change too. And all the behavioral strategies I use, which I've been told overlap with a lot of what PTs do, especially the pacing stuff. Yeah, for sure. I heard you give like the pacing example on, on the podcast you did with Zach. And I'm like, oh, this is exactly what I would do with someone. Um, just more of like from the physical standpoint, obviously considering all those other things, but I really like the way, and this is probably why you're really good at what you do. I really like the way that you laid out like the, the different areas of the cognitive behavioral therapy thing. Cause just like having you hit on those just in my head, I'm like, Oh, this is what I would go through in like an initial assessment, like not specifically, but like when you're hitting those things, I'm like, Oh, that's why we ask these questions. And that's why at least like we put an effort into like jotting down some of those things. Like when people are really talking about like this feeling of hopelessness or what's like really driving some of these darker feelings that you're getting and always like noting them and potentially diving into them, maybe not on that, that assessment, but at some point down the road, especially if it has a relationship to their pain or the injury that they're going through. Yep. Yeah. See, you asked before about feeling hopeful. I feel hopeful when I hear stuff like that. Nice. That makes me happy. <laughs> um, the one thing I did want you to touch on, I thought it was really good. And I think it's like a cool way, you know, especially for, you know, we have a lot of new grads and, and younger clinicians that listen to the show. Like the idea of like the, I think it was the pain recipe. Is that what you, you called it? Like, I really like the way that you use that. And I think it's a good way for maybe like a newer clinician who's trying to like understand some of these things to use it with a, with a client. Pain dial also, pain recipe, both of those things. Let's start with the pain recipe. Yeah, we can start there. Okay. See yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So um, I think because there's so much stigma that comes along with pain psychology, I'm always like thinking about language because I feel like I'm this like used car salesman and people don't really want to be talking to me a lot of the time. So I have to be very like careful and strategic with the language I use. Um, so I, I think I think that's probably why I come up with these metaphors and ways of talking about things because I have to make it resonate. So the pain, the idea of a pain recipe is I always ask my patients about, um, times where their pain is particularly bad. And I call that their high pain recipe and everybody can tell me a high pain recipe. And just to back up for a moment, what I mean by recipe is just as you have a recipe for baking brownies, right? Like you need certain ingredients to go in in a certain order and then to go into the oven at a certain temperature and be baked for a certain amount of time. You also have a recipe for low pain and you have a recipe for high pain. And what we want to do together with our patients is help them figure out what the recipe is. There's always a recipe. We're just not always aware of it. So I always start with the high pain recipe first because that's usually easy for people. So they'll say, a high pain recipe or a bad day, a bad pain day is like, I got crappy sleep last night. I'm really stressed out at work. And I like did this thing with my body and like, I don't know, whatever, 15 other things. Like I didn't eat well yesterday. Like I ate like a ton of garbage and you know, all the things when we're thinking about pain from a biopsychosocial perspective, when I hear people talk about like the high pain day recipe, I'm always thinking like, what's the bio stuff? What's the psych stuff? What's the so, you know, social stuff. So they'll give you like a bunch of things and you can encourage that too. You can ask questions, you know, and then I always have it like in a, in a diagram and I have them write it out. So like high pain recipe is on this side, but then what's the low pain recipe. Cause if you know your high pain recipe, that means there's a low pain recipe. And honestly, it's just the opposite usually. So it's like getting a good night's sleep and figuring out how to have like peaceful conversations and not have so much conflict in my family relationships and, you know, moving instead of sitting still for an entire week or, um, I don't know, going to therapy or eating well, having three healthy meals and like, you know, not living off junk food, whatever it is. Um, but I find it 
helpful to actually map that out for people because then our goal becomes, how do we make tomorrow a low pain recipe? What do we need to do to structure the rest of your week so you have as many low pain days as possible so that your pain recipe is that low pain recipe and not the high pain recipe? So I find that that's a way also of talking, like weaving in this biopsychosocial model of treating pain without actually like talking about it that way. But so I'll prompt people and I'll say, like, I'll just ask questions from each of the three domains, right? Like what was going on with you socially on your low pain day? Oh, I saw friends. I got out of the house. I like whatever went to church or like whatever the things they do, you know? So I find that that's a really useful way of like setting up treatment. Yeah. I like it. Cause it also helps people reflect on some of the things that have made them feel better. Right. And I think sometimes that what we see is like, people be like, Oh, I'm not feeling any better. I'm, or I'm not making any progress. And then you dive a little bit deeper and, and ask some questions. And then you start to pull some things out of people and they're, and then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, well, maybe I am noticing that this is a little bit better. Um, so I think it's always good to have, at least in my, my opinion, having people reflect on those things um, to see what's working well. And it also seems like it's a good, like way to find the low hanging fruit in terms of like what you could really execute on going into that next day. And maybe it's as simple as like one thing, like, okay, I'm going to get eight hours of sleep tomorrow, knowing that that's pushing that that low pain recipe kind of day. That's right. And the other thing I like about it is that it's asking, instead of us telling our patients what's going to work for them, it's letting them tell us, right? So they say, oh, my low pain recipe is like X, Y, and Z. These are the days I feel better. These are the things that I do. And you're like, great, I'm going to support you in doing those things that you just told me about. Cause you know, I think the three of us could come up with a pretty solid low pain recipe, right? Like we know the things that you need to do, but it's better when they tell you, cause then you like have buy-in and motivation. Right. And they definitely feel like in control. I'm sure some right. will come up with some interesting ideas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the thing, eh? You, they you do. You know what you're going to get. <laughs> no, it's true. But I actually really like that. Like for some of the, for some of my patients, they'll tell me cool hobbies and things that they're involved in, like kiting, you know, like I feel better when I go kiting and I'm like, oh, rad. I didn't even know that was on your list. Like, let's make, how do we get you to go kiting? Like, who's your kiting community? Who do we need you to text? And so you can go kiting once a week, you know, it's just, I find it's like a creative way of like finding out what gives people pleasure and gets them out of the house and gets them outdoors and makes them happy. Cause that's part of any good low pain recipe. And we forget about that sometimes. And it's going to make the outcome better because I would never prescribe. I don't know, maybe you would, but I would never prescribe uh, kiting <laughs> unless <laughs> somebody else brought it up. <laughs> So that's one of the things about cognitive behavioral therapy. One of the things we do is prescribe pleasurable activities. Literally, it's really important because again, it's a combo, it's like this perfect biopsychosocial solution in my mind. Cause a pleasurable activity is usually something active. It's usually something with people and it's usually something that gets you moving and it's something you enjoy. So it's raising your like positive emotions, lowering your negative emotions and like lowering that pain volume, that pain dial thing. Yeah. Yeah. Let's dive into the pain dial. I think it's a good, that's a good thing to talk about. Like I, I, I would love for you to explain like that to, to people. Okay. Rad. It's really nerdy neuroscience. Do you think people will be okay with nerdy neuroscience? I think people will be okay with that. We've got some nerds. Yeah, for sure. I love nerds. <laughs> yeah. I really love nerds. I love podcasts that attract nerds. Okay. So, um, this is rooted. I'm warning you. It's so nerdy. This is rooted in Melzack and Wall's gate control theory of pain back from 65, but it has evolved. You know, pain science has evolved into the neuromatrix theory of pain and it continues to evolve as pain science evolves. Um, and essentially this is just a metaphor that I've learned to deliver to every single patient who walks in my door as young as age eight. And I am not exaggerating. I deliver this to every kid and every family. Um, and I'm going to modify it a little because you guys are like advanced PTs. So I'm going to like add in a little extra nerdiness. Um, but, but essentially here's what this pain science tells us. Pain science tells us that there is no one single pain center in the brain, right? Pain is what we call a diffuse neurological process. And I do use that language with families because it makes me sound really smart. And I want them to think that I'm smart. <laughs> Diffuse neurological process. So there's lots of parts of the brain that process pain, but three in particular that I'm going to tell you about. One is your cerebral cortex. And that's the part of your brain responsible for thoughts, thoughts, 
always implicated in pain processing. Two is your prefrontal cortex responsible for attentional processes and executive functioning. We're going to talk about why that's important. And three is your limbic system. Your limbic system is literally your brain's emotion center. And what that means is that pain, all pain is both physical and emotional 100% of the time. All pain, knee pain, back pain, post-surgical pain is always physical and emotional because your limbic system is always processing sensory information from the body. So that's part one. Now I want you to imagine that in your central nervous system, you have what I'm going to call a pain dial, which is like the volume knob on your car stereo, and you can turn it up and down. And there's a lot of things that can raise or lower pain volume, but three things in particular, you can tell I've done this a few times. Ready? Stress and anxiety changes pain volume. Thing two is mood and emotions raise and lower pain volume. And thing three is attention or what you're focusing on. And the reason I deliver these three things in particular is because my treatment is going to focus on changing those things. So stress and anxiety changes pain volume, mood and emotions and attention or what you're focusing on. So specifically, here's how this works. When stress and anxiety are high and your body and your muscles are tense and tight and your thoughts are worried, your brain sends a message to this pain dial, raising pain volume. So whatever pain you had before, when you're stressed or anxious, your pain physically feels worse. Two is mood and emotions. So when you're miserable and depressed and your emotions are negative, you're angry, you're infuriated, doesn't matter, anything on that spectrum, your limbic system raises pain volume, turns up that pain dial. So whatever pain you had before when emotions are negative, pain physically feels worse. And thing three is attention. So when you're home in bed and you're missing work or you're a kid and you're missing school and you're missing social activities and you're missing exercise and you're missing, missing your life and you're focusing on your pain, your prefrontal cortex raises the pain dial, raises pain volume. Pain feels worse when you're focused on it. And we all know that that's true, right? But the reason this is cool for our patients is because the opposite is also true. So when stress and anxiety are low and your body is relaxed and your thoughts are calm, your brain lowers pain volume. Pain feels less bad when you are relaxed and calm. Thing two is emotions. When emotions are positive, neuroscience research shows us that when you are feeling happy and joyful and grateful, your brain, your limbic system lowers pain volume. And thing three is attention. So when you're distracted, you're like engaged in other activities, you're out with your friends, you're doing things, your brain, your prefrontal cortex will also lower pain volume. So I usually ask my patients, Hey, tell me about a time you were like feeling happy, feeling good out with your friends. You're so absorbed in something that you forget about your pain and they can always give me an example. And that is not magic. That's just neuroscience, right? So I find also that this metaphor gives me great buy-in for treatment because as soon as people learn that there are all these factors that change pain volume, like the things you think and the emotions you feel and the, the behavior choices you make every single day, it gives them this sense of agency and power. And you asked before what we do in pain psychology, what I always want to do is give power back to my patients because pain takes away power, right? It makes you feel like your body and your life are out of your control. And what I find that when you teach people about this pain dial thing, what you're doing is you're giving them their power back. You're saying there's so much more that we can do for your pain than, than you even realized, like, let's go do that together. So that's the metaphor. I hope everybody steals it and uses it. Cause like, I have this crazy belief that everyone deserves to understand their pain. Call me crazy. (laughs) That metaphor is outstanding. I'm picturing like, because you said that little kids use it too, I'm I'm picturing them actually thinking there's a dial, like a literal dial, you know, but that's a good point. I hope they don't actually think that (laughs) they're like looking around for it. Yeah. 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 They're like, can you scan me? It's a good point. I never thought about that before. Oh, that's great. No, but I think it's, um, you know, I, you make a good point when people realize all the factors that influence their, their pain. I, and it, if we do a good job, at least like in our context, I've found of like explaining or educating on that, it can be very, um, I, I feel like relieving for the individual to know that there's multiple ways that they can control these things. Um, and it's really cool to see 
that shift when it happens with clients. So I'm, I'm on board with that. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I find that's also useful because then every session I have after that, the first thing I ask when they come in is what did you do this week to lower pain volume and how did that go? Right. And they can give me a list of things like, oh, I did this fun activity. I went kiting and it lowered pain volume, you know? Um, and then what raised pain volume also is part, and that's part goes back to our pain recipe, right? Cause the pain recipe is just low pain volume versus high pain volume. So. Yeah. I feel like if we had three hours, I could oh, yeah. ask, I could, I have so many other questions, <laughs> but they all lead down to way more questions and way more <laughs> answers. So we'll be here in days. I have one. This is what we'll wrap up on. What was like your favorite animal to study back then? <laughs> Did you have a particular, like, <laughs> you know, was there one that you were super fascinated with? Does this mean we've abandoned the pain neuroscience? I like when I got too nerdy on you guys. I like way too nerdy. We're just like transitioning into like the wrap up. No, it was great. I just, I've been thinking about it ever since the start of the podcast. I'm like, I wonder if there's like a particular area. Yeah. I'll tell you raptors. Do you know what raptors are? Of course. <laughs> I'm wearing a Toronto Raptors hat. <laughs> a little different, a little different, different, different. They're birds of prey. So like hawks, eagles, owls. I just think they're so cool. Nice. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm, I was, outing, I'm like totally outing myself as such a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, thanks so much for your time. Honestly, this was, this was great. And these conversations are, are so fun. And like Will said, I think we could go on for hours, but I don't want to take too much more of your time. So maybe if you could just leave where people could like find a little bit more about you or um, your workbook, all that good stuff, that would be awesome. Yeah. So with the pain management workbook is on Amazon and it's like 20 bucks. And again, affordable, accessible, like pain psychology is my MO in life. Um, as for where to find me, I have a really dorky website. It's just my last name. It's zafnis.com. And I have a resources page on there with a ton of free resources. Um, like there's like videos, there's like Laura or Mosley links, there's Adrian Lowe stuff. Um, I happen to love those guys, by the way, I should say those two gentlemen, Laura or Mosley and Adrian Lowe kindly edited my pain education chapters. I tried to pay them. They wouldn't accept any money. I just like wanted to make sure that I was like saying things accurately and that I was being collaborative too. Um, so I have deep appreciation for all physios, uh, but zofnus.com is the website. There's like websites, there's podcast links, there's article links, there's free guided audio. There's like a ton of stuff on there. If people want to like nerd out on journal articles also, I am also on Twitter. Like I was never a social media person really until the pandemic. And then like, I think that's how I found you guys or how you found me. Just, I, I started, like I created a couple of accounts. I don't really know what I'm doing, but on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Zafnis and on Instagram, I'm at the real Doc Zaf because I couldn't yes. think of a name and I got really nervous. So that was my name. That's an amazing name. <laughs> Thank <I'm> you. <laughs> Oh yeah. And the, the resource section on the website is amazing. So like any of you that are listening to it again, or new guys are just trying to figure out where do I start to find some information? Like I checked out the resource page. There's a ton of stuff that, that's there. It's a great place to start to just like even open your mind to some of the, the ideas and the things that we talked about. So yeah, I definitely think that that's a great page to go to, but uh, yeah, Rachel, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. And uh, look forward to maybe chatting some other time or if we ever, make it out to one of those pain summits, maybe we'll cross paths. That would be so cool. Awesome.